Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part one of The Armor of God. Amen. Well, as Christians, we love to look at ourselves as sheep. We love the idea of lying down in green pastures. We love the idea of being led by still waters. We, we love the idea of experiencing the peace and the rest of the Lord. But the metaphor of a sheep is just one side of the Christian persona. There's another side that's not nearly as serene. The other side is we're soldiers. The scriptures not only teach that you and I are sheep, but it also teaches that you and I are soldiers. And so it is true that in our lives, sometimes the Lord will lead us, you know, to lie down uh, in green pastures. He will lead us beside the still waters. But at other times in our lives, the Lord will absolutely lead us right into a heated battle. And at that point, you and I have got a choice we can either put our tail underneath our legs and run and retreat, or we can stand and we can fight. So, of course, the Bible teaches that we need to stand and we need to fight. Paul, writing to his protege, Timothy, said in 1 Timothy 6.12, he said, fight. I want everybody please to say fight. He says, fight, the good fight of faith. Later on, he tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good, what's the next word? Soldier of Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul tells Timothy, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a what? Soldier. And so if you're a born-again Christian, you need to know that God enlisted you as a soldier. And so the day that you made your decision to follow Jesus Christ, and by the way, we just had the privilege in between services of leading yet another person, 100% sincere, not knowing Christ, he wanted to receive Christ. And now he's a soldier in the Lord's army. It just happened 10 minutes ago. Praise God for that, right? <laughs> Praise God for that. Has that happened in your life? And so when you made the decision to follow Christ, you actually signed on a dotted line to go to war. Stu Weber, who's the author of Tender Warrior, said, and I quote, Know it or not, like it or not, you and I are in a war. And we need to begin living as if we were in a battle for our lives because, in fact, we are. And so if a soldier like you and I have any chance of victory in this life, then we, we need to know a lot about two things. And so that's what we're going to do for the next two Sundays. The two things that you and I need to know a lot about, we need to know a lot about our enemy, that's Satan, and we need to know a lot about our armor, the armor that God gives us in order to fight against the devil and his angels. And so this Sunday, in part one of the series, we're gonna talk about our enemy, and the next Sunday, in part two, we're gonna talk all about our armor. And so hopefully you're there, Ephesians, Chapter 6, starting now in verse 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. He doesn't say, just say, be strong. That only lasts for a little while. He doesn't say, be strong, you know, with willpower. That's only going to last for a little while. No, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay, so how do you do that, Paul? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, not run, not retreat, that you may be able to stand against the wiles. The word wiles there simply means schemes or plans of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, literally head officers. I'll talk about that later. Against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so the Bible is very clear that you and I have an enemy, and he's called in verse 11, 
the devil. And so this devil has a plan to destroy your life and my life. And some people have a problem with this because they say, well, why in the world would a loving God create an evil being? And I would respond that a, a loving God did not create an evil being. A loving God created a perfect angel, and he gave that perfect angel the gift of free will. That's what God does for angels. That's what God does for human beings. And so what did God do? God created a perfect angel, and his name was Lucifer. His name literally means day star or shining one. The prophet Ezekiel says that he's the anointed cherub. And so he belongs to this, or he belonged in the past, to this special order of, of angels called the cherubim. Check out what Ezekiel says about Lucifer. We'll put that verse up on the screen. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 uh, through 14. Can we see Ezekiel 28? There we go. You, he says about Lucifer, were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were, what's that word? Created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And so please note that Lucifer was created. Sadly, some people buy into this erroneous doctrine called dualism. They believe in this sort of religious dualism. In other words, on this side you've got God, and, and God represents everything that's good in the universe. But on this side you have evil or the devil or whatever you want to call him or it. And, and that enemy represents everything that's evil in the universe. And the dualist would say that good and evil have equal power. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that there's one God. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and sovereign. Yahweh is the creator. And Yahweh created a perfect angel, just like he created millions of other angels. And this angel, again, his name was Lucifer. Lucifer was an amazing musician. Apparently, when God created him, some scholars believe that God actually built pipes into this angel's celestial body. Check it out again in, in Ezekiel 28. You are the seal of perfection. He says, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Here it is. And the workmanship of your timbrels, that's some sort of musical instrument, maybe like a tambourine or whatever. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. And so imagine this beautiful, wise, shining angel who was also a walking orchestra. And now you're beginning to picture who Lucifer was. Okay, so did Lucifer use his being in order to worship God? Of course he did. All the angels and all human beings for that matter. We were all created for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to glorify God. And so he used, no doubt, his being to worship the Lord until something tragic occurred. And so please now hold your place in Ephesians 6. Turn all the way back to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Starting in verse 12. The Bible says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? Okay, so why in the world did Lucifer fall? Verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will. That's why he fell right there. <laughs> it's all about him. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. You can translate the word stars sometimes to angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like El Elyon in the Hebrew, means the most high. That's the name that he chose for God that he wanted to emulate. I will be like the most high. 
Yet, verse 15, you shall be brought down to Sheol, or the grave, or the pit, or, the, or hell. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest parts of the pit. So sometime in eternity past, Lucifer allowed pride and jealousy to go unchecked in his heart. And it absolutely led to his downfall. And so imagine this wise, bright, beautiful angel, right? And he's using his being to worship God. And as he's worshiping God, as he's viewing the majesty of God, he begins to desire the position of God. And right then, sometime in eternity past, his heart twisted. Perhaps he thought, you know, look how beautiful I am. <laughs> Shouldn't we also worship the creation as well as the creator? Worship me. I, I want to be like the most high. He says, I will be like the most high. And so Lucifer allowed his pride to corrupt his perfection. I want to show you what St. Augustine says, quote, it was pride that changed angels into devils, and it is humility that makes men as angels. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so isn't it interesting, the name that Lucifer chose as far as what he wanted, what quality did he want to emulate from God? He said, I will be like El Elyon. I will be like the most high. Why did he choose that name of God? It's because Lucifer was all about power. Again, he wanted God's power. He wanted God's position. And that's been his twisted ambition for thousands of years. When you consider the other names for God down through the ages, you know, Yahweh Rohi, which is the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord our healer. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. You need to know that Satan doesn't have any interest in those names of God. He has no interest in the shepherding or healing or caring part of God's nature. No, all he wants is power. And he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I, 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 I. And what a contrast. Man, I tell you, it's so, in, in such a stark contrast to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who being in the form of God, right? Morphe in the Greek, essential form. In other words, Jesus was God. He is God. And so Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Listen to this. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so here you have the eternal, uncreated Son of God sitting high and exalted in his heaven. And he finds out, he knows, right, that in the future, humanity is going to turn against God and sin. The wage of sin is death. He doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want us to die and go to hell. He loves us. So what did he do? He stepped off the throne, and he stepped down. He entered time and space. He went down, down, down to a fallen planet. And he was born of a virgin, became a man. And then he went farther down, all the way down to a cross and the Son of God, the uncreated Holy God, hung half naked on, on, on this cross, this Roman cross. Peter says he bore our sin in his body on the tree. He paid the price for our sins. He died. Then he went even farther down into the center part of the earth. Down, down, down. Of course, he rose again the third day. Therefore, verse 9 I'm just quoting from Philippians 2. God, okay, so because Jesus decided to go down, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a contrast. Hey, what a contrast between Lucifer 
and between Jesus. Lucifer, who wants to ascend. Lucifer, who wants to have a reputation. Lucifer, who wants to be worshipped. Lucifer, who wants to be praised. What happened? He got kicked down out of heaven. And you compare that to Jesus, who didn't want to ascend. He decided to descend. And he decided to become a servant. And not only that, he came to seek and to save those who were lost. So he went to a Roman cross. What a stark difference between Lucifer and Jesus. And it's true. Hey, listen, the way up is down. And the way down is up. You want to be exalted someday? Be a servant. Every day, wake up and pray, Lord, make me a servant and a blessing to my spouse, to my kids, to my friends, to my family. May it not be about I, 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 I all the time. May it be about them. May it be about you first, and then secondly them, and then thirdly me. By the way, that's how you can have joy in your heart. Right? J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, you last. If you live that way, you'll have joy. And then one day, God will exalt you. So what a difference. Revelation 12 alludes to the fact that Lucifer was somehow able, and we don't know all the details. This is incredible to me. But somehow he was able to get one-third of the angels in heaven to follow him in his rebellion against God. We're talking about not some guy with a red cape, horns, and a pitchfork. We're talking about a genius, an evil genius. Somehow he deceived a third of the angels, just like he deceives people today, to join him in his rebellion against God, and they were all cast down from heaven. And of course, now Lucifer is Satan, and the fallen angels are called demons. Now one day, the disciples of Jesus came back to the Lord, and they were all excited after this evangelistic campaign, and they said in Luke 10, 17, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're all excited, right? Because um, they have this supernatural power from God in the name of Jesus. And I love the Lord's response. Can we see it? Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, before the incarnation. You know what incarnation means, right? It's what you do every December 25th. You celebrate the incarnation. God becoming flesh, the Christmas story, all right? So before the incarnation, because some people are all messed up in their doctrine, and they believe that Jesus started, was created, and he started, you know, in Bethlehem. No, 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 no. Jesus is the uncreated, eternal God, and God became flesh. And so before that incarnation, before God was born of a virgin and lived as a man on planet Earth, before all of that, sometime in eternity past, Jesus said, I saw Satan, Lucifer, the shining one, the day star, the one whose body is like a musical instrument, the beautiful, wise cherub, anointed cherub. I saw him get kicked out of heaven. Where'd he go? Right here to planet Earth. Later on, Lucifer is found in Eden. And through lies and deception, he gets the first couple to distrust and disobey God. Notice I said distrust. He first got them, deceived them, to stop trusting in God, to question God, to question God's word. Some of you right now are questioning God. Some of you right now are questioning God's word. You need to know that's an attack of the enemy. It's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. And what happened, of course, you know the story, is that Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed the Lord. Eve was deceived. Adam deliberately disobeyed the Lord. They ate the forbidden fruit. And when that happened, you need to understand that a change took place on planet Earth. The Garden of Eden was corrupted. The world was corrupted. Because when Adam directly disobeyed God, Somehow, some way, he gave a certain measure of his authority, a certain measure of his dominion to the devil. And so the result of that is that Adam 
plunged the whole creation into sin and death. It's called the fall of man. How severe was this fall? Check it out, John, 1 John 5, 19. He says, we know that we are children of God, speaking to the church, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now think about that for a minute. Okay, we, and how many of you guys know that just because you go to church doesn't mean you're really part of the church? Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're a born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So the we there is the true ecclesia, the true followers of Jesus Christ. We know that we are, what? Children of God. That's a beautiful place to be. But, check out the rest of the verse, the, what's the next two words? Whole world is under the sway or the control of the evil one. Now, if you don't believe that, then you haven't been reading the headlines lately. The whole world really is under the control of the evil one. Not, again, the true blood-bought, born-again followers of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the whole world. The Christ-rejecting world is under the control. Now, if you don't believe that, again, read the headlines. All the murders, the rapes, the scandals, the sex trafficking, the billion-dollar porn industry, child pornography, racism, anti-Semitism, Islamic extremists like ISIS wreaking havoc and, and spreading jihad. Militant Islamic states like Iran enriching uranium. Let me tell you something. The dumbest person on earth knows that the reason that Iran is enriching uranium is because they want to ultimately wipe Israel off the map. You don't have to have a lot going on up here to understand that. And so, man, shame on the world if we allow that militant Islamic state to enrich uranium and, and like North Korea, have a bunch of, of nuclear weapons. Are you kidding me? I'm, thank you, I'm thankful that you agree. Of course the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Let me tell you something. If you were one of those Christians in the Middle East that was lined up on that beach, kneeling down, waiting to lose your head by some thug, then you would know that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're driving down 95, and somebody cuts you off and then flips you off, you'll be reminded that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. When you're your kid's teacher calls you and says that your son or daughter is being bullied in the classroom, you will be reminded that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. When someone you know and love with all your heart decides to go down a path away from God and into the arms of the world and the flesh and the devil, you will be reminded again that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. And Jesus knew this. When Satan took Jesus up to that high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, this is what Satan said to Jesus. Look at Matthew 4, 9. All these things, you know what things means there? The kingdoms of the world. All these kingdoms I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You remember Jesus' reply? He quoted from Deuteronomy, away from you, away with you, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now here's what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, what are you talking about? What do you mean all the kingdoms of the world belong to you? All the kingdoms of the world don't belong to you. I'm sovereign. You're not. Is that what Jesus said? You know why? Because all the kingdoms of the world do belong to Satan. Does that mean Jesus is less sovereign? No. He's absolutely sovereign. But right now, in the period that we're in right now, and it's borne out in what Jesus said three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. In John 12, 31, 
1611, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Later on, Paul in Ephesians 2.2, we saw it a couple months ago, he calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the god of this age. Now I know some of you are new to the Bible and some of you are thinking, I've never heard anything like this in my life. What are you talking about? You're scaring me, Pastor Mike. And a little while ago, you said that Lucifer was created. You said that God was omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, but that Lucifer was not. And so how can the whole world be under the control of Satan if he can only be in one place at one time? Well, that's the simple answer. It's through a network of demons strategically stationed all across the world that the whole world belongs under the sway of the wicked one. Look again, go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Look again at verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so in the unseen realm, there are demonic entities, and they're all working according to the plan or schemes of their lord, Lucifer or Satan. And they're, again, they're strategically stationed all across the world, and they want to destroy you. See, I'm here on Sunday morning to bring you glad tidings. There's someone up there in the air that hates you, loathes you. When you made that decision to turn from your sins and give your life to Jesus Christ, to follow him as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know metaphorically that your picture was put up as most wanted on the post office of hell. And so you have a real enemy and he really wants to destroy you. And he really does have millions of demons. You say, how do you come up with that? Well, uh, it, the Bible doesn't say how many angels were created, but we know that Jesus talked about how every little child has a guardian angel. Well, just do the math. There's a lot of children in the world, millions and millions of children in the world. Each one of them has a guardian angel. Okay, so one third of the angels uh, were cast out of heaven, became demons, and so we assume there's millions of demons. There would have to be in order for the whole world to lie under the control of the wicked one. I don't have time to go there, uh, so don't turn there, but let me just whet your appetite for further study down the road. But in Daniel chapter 10, there's this fascinating story where we get a glimpse into the spirit realm. And in, in, in Daniel 10, it says that God dispatched a holy angel to give a message to his prophet Daniel. But as that holy angel was en route to go talk to Daniel, he was opposed by the, quote, prince of Persia. Now, this wasn't a flesh and blood prince. This was a demonic overlord of Persia. By the way, modern-day Persia is Iran. And so this good angel is stopped by this bad angel, and there's warfare in the heavenlies. The good angel cannot overcome the bad angel until Michael, a good angel, shows up. And he fights against the prince of Persia, and that angel from God is able to get through and get the message to Daniel. But as he's talking to Daniel, he's saying in the future, I got to go back and I got to fight against the prince of Greece. In other words, I got to later on go fight against the demonic overlord of Greece. And you know what he said then? This is what's so amazing to me. He says, the only one who stands with me, Daniel, is Michael, your prince. Okay, what nationality was Daniel? He was a, a Jew. That means he comes from what nation? Israel. The angel told Daniel, the only one who stands with me is Michael, a good angel, your prince. And so the theory, which I personally believe, 
is that back then, even though the whole world lied under the control of the evil one, a holy angel was watching over God's people, Israel, Michael. And I personally believe he still watch over, watches over them today. Absolutely, undeniably. Even though I think from time to time he weeps because as a nation, they're still in rejection of their Messiah. Though when I was there last September, there are thousands of Messianic Jews, thousands of Jews in Israel that are turning to Jesus as their Messiah. But you need to understand that, hey, Michael's watching over Israel. And it doesn't matter who wants to wipe them off the map, pardon bad English, ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna happen, ever. Ever. And you know, normally I don't make political statements, but I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna step out and make one today. When the Prime Minister of Israel comes to our country and is invited to speak to our Congress, then the President should at least have enough common courtesy to invite him over and meet with him. Absolutely. I'm telling you what, the day that America steps back from our strong ties of being an ally with Israel is the day America goes down the toilet. Because God said this, God said this to Abraham and his descendants, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. You wanna be blessed or you wanna be cursed? If you wanna be blessed, stand with Israel, pray for Israel, against all those nations that surround them and hate them, that would love to wipe them off the, off the map. But like I said, it's not going to happen. Here's the good news. The authority that Satan has over this world is temporary. It's temporary. We don't have to go on living like this for long because one day the Son of Man's gonna return and he's gonna take back what is rightfully his. You know what that is? When Satan said, all these kingdoms can be yours if you'll kneel down right now, well, guess what? Jesus is going to come back and get those kingdoms. According to the book of Revelation, read it, you'll be blessed. One day the seals will be broken, the trumpets will sound, the bowls of God's wrath will be poured out, and after a series of cataclysmic events ending with the battle of Armageddon, the Son of Man will split the sky, he will come on the clouds of heaven, he will vanquish his enemies, he will set up his kingdom, and he will rule and reign first for a thousand years and then forever and ever as the Son of God. Coming to a theater near you. And so until that glorious day, you and I have an enemy, and the enemy's bent on your destruction, your family's destruction, your family's destruction, and your church's destruction. And quite frankly, it's time for some of you to wake up and smell the coffee. Because here's what a lot of Christians do, right? There's a battle going on on the front lines, and they say, well, that's uncomfortable, and so they retreat way back here where it's all comfortable and easy, and it's all about them because they don't like the spiritual attacks. They don't like dealing with the enemy. So they're way back here where, and they snooze through their whole Christian lives. Apathetic, not serving the Lord. Coming to church maybe twice a month. Sitting, soaking, souring, never serving. Never serious about the Lord. Never connecting, never serving, never growing, never giving. You're not a lifelong follower of Christ. You said a little prayer for fire insurance. Listen, it's time for you to realize that maybe you have 70, 75, 80 years, 85 years, whatever it is, or you might be gone tomorrow. It's time, if you're sleeping spiritually, to wake up. This church is a real church. It's not a perfect church, but it's a healthy church. And it's a great place to connect and serve and grow and give and be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. When you come here on Sunday morning to worship the Lord, stop coming on the third song. Stop standing there with your hands in your pocket watching some kind of performance. Here's an idea, stand there, envision Jesus, the Son of God, as the Lord of glory, lift up your hands and begin to sing your prayers to Him. Worship Him in spirit and truth. It's time to wake up. I listened to an interview just yesterday from this young man, probably in his 20s, who's dying of cancer. 
He's trying to come to grips, loves the Lord with all his heart. He's trying to come to grips to this whole thing that he's going to be dead within a few years. And you know, people were asking him, well, do you have a hard time with your attitude towards God? You know what he said? He said, some people erroneously think that God owes us something. God doesn't owe us anything. Your next breath is because of the grace of God in your life. And I'm telling you, some of you are sleeping spiritually. And if the trumpet sounded right now and you stood before the Lord, your sins may be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, but you will still stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be sorrow as wood, hay, and stubble of your life is burnt up. You may make it in by the skin of your teeth, but you got to understand that there really is a judgment coming. And I would say, based upon everything that God has done for you, shouldn't you respond by giving your 100% best to Jesus Christ? So where does this fight take place? Where does spiritual warfare take place? It doesn't do any good at all for a soldier to get ready for a battle, to get all suited up for a battle, but then not know where the battle is going to take place. It just makes sense for a soldier to identify the battlefield so that he's ready to engage his enemy. And so your next point, if you're taking notes, where does the battle take place? Spiritual warfare primarily takes place in the mind. In the mind. At this point, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 will be our the last scripture that we're in today. Second Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I've heard guys say before, they're so mad at Satan, and they say, well, if he was here, I'd punch him in the nose. Well, you know, he doesn't have a physical nose to punch, so why don't you... Why don't you figure out how to really put a hurting on them in the name of Jesus by looking at verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, he's talking about mental strongholds here. Casting down arguments. He's talking about mental arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the, what's the word? Knowledge of God, bringing every, what's the word? Thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our fight is not on a battlefield somewhere. Our fight is right between our ears. As we pull down mental strongholds, as we cast down mental arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God as we bring every thought into captivity, making it obedient to Christ. I don't know why God has set it up this way. I think it was part of the fall of man. But for whatever reason, and I'm not trying to scare anybody here, I'm just telling you the truth. Okay, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, okay? But for whatever reason, God has it set up that demons have a certain amount of, amount of access to your mind. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. You say, what do you mean? Prove it biblically. Well, it's very, it's all through the Bible. How else would Satan... Well, before I get to that, let me, um, let me give you two things concerning demonic attacks. Here's your first point as you're taking notes. Demons cannot possess a Christian, but they can trouble a Christian. A couple things I wanted to get out of the way before I talk about taking every thought captive. Now, demons cannot possess a Christian. Please don't send me emails. You'll never change my mind on this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're not your own. So God, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you if you're a follower of Christ. And then 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay, so help me out here. 
Who lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit. Who's in the world? The devil and his angels. Who's greater? The Holy Spirit. And again, pardon the bad English, but there ain't no way the Holy Spirit's gonna let some evil spirit come and live inside of you. It's just not gonna happen. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, a demon cannot enter inside of you, a demon certainly cannot control you, the Holy Spirit would never allow it. So can a true believer be possessed by a demon? No. Can a true believer be tempted and troubled by demons? Yes. Concerning the attacks of the enemy, John Calvin wrote this, and I quote, Demons are always warring against Christians, assailing them with plans, his plans, urging them with solicitations, pressing close upon them, disturbing, alarming, and occasionally wounding, but never conquering them. You say, that sounds unpleasant. Well, yeah, when you committed your life to Jesus Christ, you went to the front lines where the where the bullets are whizzing by. Warfare is never pleasant. The second thing I want to share with you is demons cannot read your mind, but they will attempt to influence your thoughts. Again, demons were created. And so they're not om omniscient. They don't know all things. But they will absolutely attempt to influence your thoughts. And sometimes people joke, you know, about, you know, um, you remember Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it? So they, they, people like to joke about stuff they don't really understand. And so some people say, you know, I got an angel on my right shoulder, and he's always whispering things into my ear trying to get me to do what's right. But I got, I got this demon over here on this shoulder, and he's always whispering into my ear trying to get me to do wrong. Well, let me say that even though that is not completely theologically accurate, <laughs> there is some truth to that, to that analogy. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're hearing voices, there are professionals who will help you, Okay. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that you're going to hear the audible voice of the devil or demons. But even though the enemy may not have the ability to whisper audible words into your ear, he does have the ability to whisper intangible thoughts into your mind. Now, getting back to biblically prove it, okay. How else could Satan have incited Ananias to lie to Peter about the real price he got for the property. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? In other words, so influenced your thoughts to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. Next thing you know, Ananias falls down dead. Satan, demons, devils, have a certain ability to suggest thoughts into our minds. How else would Satan have incited David to command Joab to take a census of Israel? 1 Chronicles 21.1 says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. He moved David, a man after God's own heart, to do something that was contrary to the will of God. How else could Satan have incited Peter to take Jesus to the side and rebuke the Lord of glory because Jesus keeps talking about going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, what? Satan. And so in all these cases, we see Satan, demons, devils, suggesting thoughts into people's minds that were contrary to the will of God. And so as we wrestle against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, demons and devils, okay, we got to remember that the battlefield primarily is right between our ears. Okay, so what do we as Christians need to do? Look again at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, here it is, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have to, this is spiritual warfare in 101, okay? We have to, as Christians, followers of Christ, bring every thought into captivity to make it obedient to Christ. Do you know what the average, you know how many thoughts the average person has every day? About 50,000, probably a lot more. 
That's a lot of thoughts to bring into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I'm not talking about all those thoughts. I'm talking about the few thoughts that the enemy will suggest into your mind that are contrary to the will of God. Now, you've got to stay with me here. I'm almost done, but listen to this. I'm talking about mental lies. You're talking about the tactics of the enemy? Here's one of the main things that he will do. He wants to divide and conquer. He hates Calvary, poor St. Lucy. <laughs> hates us to death. So you know what he'll try to do? He'll try to get little divisions going on. He hates you and your friends that you have. He will try to divide you. He hates you and your family. He will try to divide you. So you know what he does? Often what he'll do is he'll suggest a lie into your mind. And you'll begin to think something about someone that has no basis in reality at all. It's a complete assumption. But yet, you'll start to think about that. It has no basis in reality, but you'll start to think about that. And that'll lead to a thought two, three, four, thought 500. And by now, you're all up in, a, in this, this emotional state and it has nothing to do with what's true. Here's an idea. After you have the first thought, go get some facts about the situation before you let your mind continue down that road. Also, lust. Of course, the enemy will bring fleeting thoughts of sexual immorality into our mind. Gossip. We'll hear a juicy morsel of gossip, right? People, the flesh loves gossip. Oh, what happened? Ooh, really? Wow. And you'll start to think, 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 think about that. Fear. What, what happens is that, is that Something's going on, right? And you think the worst case scenario about that thing. And if I make this decision, then all this bad stuff is going to happen. And one thought turns to 10 to 50 to 500, and, and we're all fearful. Hey, check this out. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Don't allow that junk in your mind. Revenge, someone will offend you and you'll be thinking about ways to get back. Pride, you'll think that you're better than somebody else and you'll begin to look down upon them. And I go on and on and on, but I'm, this is spiritual warfare 101. The enemy will suggest thoughts in your mind that are contrary to the will of God. So as we begin to get ready for our response time and Zach comes up and I wanna share with you a last quote from Martin Luther speaking about the birds of the air. He said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. It's your choice. And so later on today, let's say you go to the park, or later on this week, you go to the park, right? You're sitting there with whoever, your family, you're on a blanket, and there's birds flying over your head. Okay, that's cool. Nothing wrong with birds. But what are you gonna do if one lands on your head? Are you really going to let that bird make a nest in your hair? No, you're going to go, woo, get out of here, right? It's the same thing with thoughts. You can't stop thoughts from just passing through your mind. But you can choose whether or not you're going to dwell on those thoughts. It's your choice. When Jesus confronted demons in the gospel, he often had two words for them. Be quiet. In modern day vernacular, shut up. That's what Jesus told demons, shut up. And so when a negative thought that's contrary to the will of God enters into your mind, you got a choice. You can be like Ananias, you can be like David, you can be like Peter, and you can allow that bird to build a nest in your hair, and that will lead you later on to sin, or you can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. You can say, shut up, and then replace that wayward thought with a scripture, with a prayer, with a song. You can replace it with what's true and noble and just and pure and lovely and a good report and virtuous and praiseworthy, Philippians 4, 8. On the count of three, I want everybody to say, shut up. You ready? One, two, three. Shut up. That's what we need to start saying to those thoughts that are contrary to the will of God. Now, when you're walking down the street all by yourself, I'm not saying, yell, shut up, right? Because then everybody just backs out of the way. We're not messing with that guy, right? 
It's not what I'm saying at all. Don't get weird. That's one of the mottos of our church. Don't be weird, okay? I'm saying internally, you got a thought that doesn't come from the Lord, just say, shut up. That's what Jesus told the demons. And then replace that thought with God's word, with a prayer, with a song, with whatever is good and wholesome and right. It's part of being a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. You know, we're here today as we spend a little time responding to the Lord. We're here today to honor Christ. But some of you don't know Christ. When I talk about, other people talk about sensing his presence and his love and his favor, you just don't know what we're talking about. Sometimes you kind of feel like an outsider. Or maybe you're visiting for the first time, second time, third time, whatever. And you're not sure where you stand with Jesus Christ. The most important decision that you can make in your life is to give your life to Jesus Christ. He really is the Messiah. He really is coming back. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.